Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. This morning, we're going to complete our series we've been doing for the last three weeks called Grow, where we have been looking at some key scriptures in the book of Psalms. In fact, in preparation, if you'd like to go ahead and start turning to Psalm chapter 51, that's where we're going to be in today. But these verses from Psalms have shown us how to remain spiritually strong in a world that, as I've said for the last four weeks, is weaker today than I've ever seen it. In addition to that, those scriptures have shown us the blessings of God that are attached to our obedience by staying strong in our faith. In week one, we looked at Psalm chapter one, where the psalmist used some great imagery to show the end result of two paths. When he wrote, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That's the path. That's the first path of those that follow Jesus. While the second path, the path of those who, who deny him is so much different. Because on that second path, you will wind up, the scriptures say, like chaff. Useless, worthless chaff that gets blown away by the wind. And I don't know of anybody that wants to end up that way. In week number two, we looked at the 112th Psalm where the psalmist again uses the imagery of two paths. He says, blessed are those who, number one, fear the Lord and who find great delight in his commands. And we talked about how that to fear the Lord was to have absolute reverence and awe for our Heavenly Father, to hold him in the highest possible regard. And how finding great delight in his commandments means that you come to believe finally, maybe for the first time in your life, that God is a whole lot smarter than we are. And how you, you will not only take the time to know what his commandments are, but furthermore, you live by them. And then the psalmist literally spells out the stream of blessings that comes to you through your obedience, like children and family, wealth and riches, peace and prosperity, generosity and kindness, respect and honor. While conversely, the other path that the wicked take, in the end, it says they will be vexed and they will gnash their teeth. They will realize that they blew it. They missed out. They completely ruined the best possible scenario for their life. Last week, we looked at probably the most famous of all the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm, and specifically the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And we talked specifically about how that we must allow God to be the good shepherd of our lives so that he can restore our soul. And we talked about how so often our souls are fatigued. And this was a lifestyle that, that David lived. And I shared with you four things that were essential to this kind of a lifestyle. First of all, to constantly ask God. You do not have because you do not ask. You must ask God. Secondly, you got to simplify your life. Thirdly, 
You've got to find your rest in him. And lastly, you've got to be quiet. You've got to cut out the noise and all the static that's going on in the background so that you can hear what the good shepherd is saying to you and so that you know where it is that he's leading you. Well, today we are going to look at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 17. This is another psalm that is written by David. And I'll be reading this morning from the New International Version. The scriptures say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. In order for you to really understand this 51st Psalm, you have to go back to an era in David's life where he felt a need to write this. There was a time when David was as spiritually strong as anyone could be. He was a godly man, and he was a godly king, and everyone in his kingdom knew that. Just the mention of David's name among his people would have instantly brought three words to their minds. First of all, integrity, because David was known as a man of integrity. Secondly, beloved, he had such deep connections with his people, with his servants, his army, that they would give their life for David, and David would do likewise. He was deeply loved, and they were loyal to him as he was loyal to them. The third word is joyful. His life was filled with joy. In fact, many of the psalms that we know today as joyful psalms were penned by none other than David. So there was a time in David's life when, when he could be defined by integrity, and that he was beloved, and that he was joyful. That is, until a great slide began in his life. It's written about in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel 11, and here's what it says in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
For some reason, David said, well, I'm not going to lead my troops into battle this time. No, I'm going to stay at home. And you know why David stayed at home? Because he could. He said, I'm the leader of this land. I don't have to do what all the other kings do. Who made up that rule anyway? I can do my own thing. So I cho I'm choosing to stay at home. So while he was at home, he got bored. And he fell into temptation. There's nothing unusual about temptation. We're all tempted. The Bible says that temptation comes to all of us in different ways because the enemy always works on our weaknesses. But David's temptation came one day in the form of a beautiful woman who was bathing on her rooftop. David was standing on the balcony surveying his kingdom, and as he surveys his kingdom, he looks on this rooftop, and he sees this woman bathing. Now, immediately, being the man of God that David was, he should have turned his eyes away. He should have walked back into the palace. But instead, he continued to watch. And the result of that was lust, and lust is always followed by curiosity. Because remember, he stayed at home, away from battle, and he was bored. So David sent one of his servants to check her out. This wasn't a part of his job description, but he sent this guy. He wanted him to find out all about her. He's thinking, I'm the king. I can do anything I want. So the servant comes back and he fills David in on all the little details. He says, this woman you saw bathing that you couldn't take your eyes off of? Well, king, her name is Bathsheba. She has a ring on her finger. So that means she's a married woman. You need to stay away from her. And furthermore, Bathsheba is married to one of your loyal soldiers, Uriah. And right about now, you have to realize that the Holy Spirit isn't just whispering into David's ears. The Holy Spirit is screaming in his ears, Stop! You are treading on dangerous ground, David. If you go any further in this slide, things are going to get tremendously serious. But if you stop right now, you can go back to your life that is marked by integrity and by being a beloved leader and by being a joyful man. Stop it now! But David doesn't stop. He sends more servants with these instructions. Bring her back to the palace for dinner. And never mind that she's a married woman. And you know, as I think about this, this whole scenario, in my opinion, I don't think that Bathsheba wanted anything to do with David. She came to the palace because she was summoned by the king. She had no choice. To not to obey the king would have been, a, would have been unthinkable in that day. So Bathsheba is brought to the palace under duress. And she, and, and she not only has dinner, but she learns that David has something else in mind. Again, when the king says, come to the palace, you come to the palace. When the king says, eat dinner with me, you eat dinner with him. But when he says, I want dessert, you're not thinking that that means you. And I can only imagine how all this played out. And I am confident it involved manipulation at the highest level. And I don't think that this is something that Bathsheba ever wanted because in the text it says, after David had sexual relations with her, then she went back home. So do you know why David had sex with this woman? Because he could. He's thinking to himself, I'm the king. I can do anything I want to do. If I want to send my servants off to, to get a married woman and tell her to come and sleep with me, it's okay because I'm in charge. And so he does. After David's dastardly deed, life goes on until one day in verse 5 it says this, the woman, Bathsheba, 
conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Notice she doesn't come running to the palace saying, good news, honey, we're having a baby. No, she, she sends word through a messenger, I'm pregnant. In other words, this is something you wanted, David. You did this to me, and now I am telling you that I'm pregnant. And when you think about it, this would have been a perfect time for David to fess up, for him to take full responsibility and stop this whole out-of-control mess. But he doesn't, because David is in a major slide right now. He's in a full-blown swan dive. David's life is on tilt, and he's in crisis management mode. So he sends word to her husband Uriah, who's out in the battlefield where David is supposed to be. He asks him to come back to the palace for an informational meeting. Now this would have been highly unusual for a king to send a foot soldier and take him off the front lines and have a meeting with the king. But David does this because he's the king and because he can. So David has this fake meeting. Now, Uriah, I want you to go home, and I want you to be with your wife. You, you do have a wife, don't you? I want you to go home tonight and be with her, whatever her name is. He even sends a gift with him to give to the couple. And what do you think that gift was? I don't know. I'm assuming it was wine. Do you see what David is doing here? He's thinking, I'll bring Uriah back from the battle, and I'll have a, a fake meeting with him. Then I'll send him home to sleep with his wife. And that way, they, he will think that the baby is his. Then my whole problem will go away, and I won't ever have to come clean. What a conspiracy. But Uriah doesn't go home. Instead, he sleeps on the palace steps, because at this point, unlike David, Uriah is operating in integrity. David wakes up the next morning, and he's shocked to see Uriah, and he says, what are you doing here? Didn't you go home last night? And Uriah says to him, how could I go home and have dinner and delights with my wife while my brothers are risking their lives out on the battlefield? I could never do that, my king. So I just slept here so I could easily return to the battlefield this morning. And that's when David realizes, oh, this guy has integrity. I didn't account for that. Now you think that Uriah's show of integrity might have jarred something in David, that, but, he, but he continues on his slide. So he says this, hey, Uriah, you don't want to come to the palace for dinner tonight with me, do you? Uriah says, do I have to? He says, yeah, you, I want you to have dinner with me. Yes, you're coming to dinner. And so at that dinner, David intentionally gets Uriah drunk. Have another drink, Uriah, because like I said, if the king asks you to have another drink, you're going to have another drink. And David says, now, Uriah, I want you to go home and be with your wife. You're in no condition to go back to the battlefield. Just go home and be with her. Surely he'll go home tonight, right? Well, David gets up the next morning, and there's Uriah again. And David's wondering to himself, do you ever go home? And Uriah says, I want to go back to battle. We are at war, my king. So David concedes, and he says, finally, well, if you're going to go back to battle, then I have a letter that I want you to give to your commanding officer, Joab. So Uriah takes the letter, no doubt thinking it's some kind of important battlefield strategy, and he gives it to Uriah, but here is the content of the letter. Put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle, then have the other men withdraw from around him so that he will be killed. And I am certain that Joab is thinking, do you really want one of our good men killed? 
But Joab does as the king instructs. And this is what it says in verse 16 and 17. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So you can see in addition to Uriah being killed that there were other soldiers who died as well. But the one that really mattered to David was dead. Mission accomplished. You would think that surely this would stop David in his tracks. And all of heaven is screaming, David, now will you stop? What could possibly be next? Stop, confess your sin, get this out in the open. You can still return to being a man of integrity, to be a man who is beloved by his people, to be a joyful man, but you've got to stop. And you know what's interesting is what the Bible doesn't say when Bathsheba received news that Uriah was killed in the battlefield. She doesn't say, great, now I can come over and live in the palace. No, in verse 26 it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She mourned the full time of mourning because she was brokenhearted over her husband's death. Verse 27 says, after the time of mourning was over, like immediately, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. That's how far David has slid. He's murdered an innocent man in battle to cover his own sin. And now he takes this man's wife in to be his own wife. David has slid all the way down to the bottom. And the only thing he has left is a sorry, in his sorry life, is a friend named Nathan, who is also a prophet of God. One day, Nathan comes to David and he says, I, I got to tell you about something really bad that happened in our city recently. There's this real powerful guy. He's got, great, he's got servants and cattle and sheep. He's got all kinds of money. He's very well connected. And he lives next door to a guy who's got nothing. But one day, this very powerful guy gets a guest from out of town who expects to be served dinner. But the rich guy doesn't want to go out and kill one of his own lambs to feed his guests, so he forces entry into this poor man's house. Now this poor man has no money, he has no connections. All he has is a couple of kids and a little lamb, and this lamb is like a, a family house pet. It actually eats at the table with the family and it sleeps in the poor father's arms. But this rich guy, David, he forces his way into the house and he rips the lamb away from the poor guy and he takes it out and he slaughters it and he feeds it to his guest. Well, David can, can hardly wait for Nathan to quit speaking and he stands up and he says, that is so wrong. Just because this guy is powerful doesn't mean he can abuse his power and take something that doesn't belong to him. Power should never, ever be abused in that way. This man should die. But before he dies, he should replace that lamb four times over. David is so upset that as the king, he wants to do something. And that's when Nathan says, David, you are that man. You've been given enormous power. You've been given Saul's throne. You've been given palaces and armies, lots of wives. There's no shortage of women in your life, David. 
You have that power, David, but you started abusing that power and your slide started when you sent your servants to check out a married woman. And then you abused that power when you forced that woman to come over and to have sex with you. Then you pulled her husband out of the battlefield and you sent him back and played this game with him to try to cover your sin. You are that man, David. You have abused your power as a consequence of your sin. You know, as I was preparing this week, I came to the conclusion that this severe consequence wasn't just due to David's act of adultery. It was because of David's, David's terrible abuse of power that he took all the way to the end. And I believe God was saying, David, I gave you all this power and I'm going to keep you in power, but I'm going to discipline you in a way that you will never ever forget because I never want someone like you abusing power in this way ever again. And as I'm thinking about this, I was reminded of the many instances of, of power abuse in our modern day world. How the serious president Bashar al-Assad has slaughtered thousands of his own countrymen. Or how Muammar Gaddafi, who was a powerful man in a poor country, he abused power for over 40 years. And when some students began to protest his oppression, he told his military to go out and slaughter them. That's how corrupt he was, among a lot of other things. Or Saddam Hussein, who would have his henchmen go out on the streets and pick up girls and bring them back to the palace so that his sons could rape them. And then they would kill those girls and leave them lying in the streets. Or how he tortured those who did not agree with him or condone the many disgusting things that he did as the, as the president or leader of Iraq. That's what power can do to people. You've probably heard that term before, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So as I was thinking about David, and I was thinking about how the power corrupted him. The Holy Spirit reminded me of times when I have abused my position and my power. Look, as a pastor of this church, I don't have a lot of power, but there have been times when I've thrown my weight around. Times when I've gotten all amped up at a meeting and I've said things in a forcible way for the simple reason that I could. And I'm not the only one sitting here today who has abused power from time to time. Some of you husbands do thoughtless, hurtful things to your wife because you can, or so you think. Sometimes a wife who is stronger than a husband berates him, emasculates him, and treats him terribly in front of others because she can. Sometimes parents say hurtful things to their children because they can. And some of you own businesses you have employees working for you and you throw your weight around just because you can. The point is we have to be careful with our power, whether we have a little bit of power or whether we have a lot of power because it matters to God. Back to our story. David now realizes that he has slid all the way to the bottom of the barrel. He is swimming in a pool of regret. He's a broken man. And this is when he writes, Psalm 51 that we read at the beginning of this message. And I want to wrap this thing up today by lifting out a few verses out of Psalm 51 and see how David responded to his fall. Because whenever we fall, it is important to know how to recover. It's essential that we remember 
our life as a Christ follower is not over. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is mercy to be found when we are truly broken and have a contrite spirit over our sinful actions. In Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knew he sinned, just like we know when we sin. And if God were to treat us the way we deserve to be treated for our sinful acts, we'd be lost and we'd be hopeless. David knew this. So he starts with, God, I know that I am in need of your mercy. And if you were to give it to me, I would be grateful for the rest of my life. Whenever you are on your knees and you are sorry about sin, don't ever hesitate to cry out to God. And then he says something that I can really relate to in verse 3. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin <clears throat> is always before me. What does he mean by that? In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser. And one of the most vicious tactics that he uses on people like you and me is to put images in our mind of the sin that we have committed. I'm talking about sins that could have happened recently, but especially sins that have even happened a long time ago. He just hits that replay button over and over and over again. And it seems like every time you turn around, even though you're sorry, even though you've repented and been forgiven, you see that image and it's always before you. In Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth and her husband co-conspire to kill a man. And there was blood that flowed and some of that blood got on Lady Macbeth's hands. And even though she washes them clean, her hands felt awful. She would wring them constantly because every time she would look at her hands, she would see the image of the blood and the murder she committed. And she'd say these words, come out, damned spot. Because all she could see was the blood on her hands. Can anybody relate to that? Have you ever done something? And even though you've been forgiven, the image of that moment can come back again and again to haunt you all over again. Well, David said, my sin is always before me. He sees the image of his baby dying. He sees the image of that corrupt soldier, Uriah, on the battlefield fighting for him with his fellow soldiers around him, when all of a sudden his buddies run in the other direction. And at that moment, Uriah realizes he's been betrayed and he's going to die. David sees that moment in his mind as that spear goes through Uriah's heart. And David sees those images again and again and again, and it's driving him insane which is why David cries out at least a half dozen times in Psalm 51 for God's cleansing power. Verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He wants the memory of these sins washed away. He wants these images to be cleansed from his mind. It reminds me of a song that we sing. What can wash away my sin? Well, it's not time. It's certainly not self-effort. And it's not hypnosis. What can erase those images that the evil one will replay over and over and over in your mind? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It takes something 
supernatural, a cleansing agent that is more powerful than any human being can manufacture. And David begs God for it at this moment. Then in verse 10, David pleads for something beyond cleansing. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. What is he talking about? David says, oh, how I would love to go back to the position of having integrity and being a beloved leader and having a joyful heart. How I wish I had a clean heart and a clear conscience. When I was on staff at Phoenix First Assembly, there was a ministry at the Dream Center called the Rescue Project, and it helped girls escape from sexual human trafficking. We had a chance to meet three of these young ladies who had been rescued and who had made some very poor choices in their lives. They shared with us how they were once broken by their sin, but they had been washed clean by the forgiving power of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And they told us how everything had changed in their life, how that the, the sky was now bluer and the trees were greener and they, how they loved to come to church, how they loved to come into the house of God and hear his word and to be around his people and learn more about Jesus. What happened to these young girls? They had clean hearts again and they had hope for a new future. How long has it been since you've had a clean heart? How long has it been since you looked at your future with great hope? There's nothing like it, especially when you've been dirty for a long time. You see, when you get a clean heart, the natural byproduct of that is joy. Verse 12 says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Prior to David's swan dive into sin, he was known for his joy. One time when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back from Jerusalem, David removed some of his clothes and he was so excited in worship that he danced in the streets. And he didn't do a kingly dance, no. He did a street kind of a dance. And he got so caught up in his dance that he embarrassed his wife. And she had some words to say to him about looking undignified. But David said, look, I dance before the Lord and I don't dance before you. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undistinguished than this or undignified. If you think that was awful, you just wait until next time, he says. I am willing to be humiliated in my eyes and your eyes if I need to, to worship my Lord. David remembers how he had this unbridled joy and how he wanted to get back to that day. Maybe I'm the only one who can relate to this, but in verse 13, after asking God to bring back his joy, David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. And I just want to point out that here's the truth about any one of us who follow Jesus. If we are anywhere near a downward slide, on the way down, we do not have too much concern for people who are far away from God because we feel too hypocritical about the whole thing. If we're in some kind of a slide, we lose our evangelistic zeal because we're living a double life. But once you are restored, once you are, are washed and cleansed and you have a clean heart, your joy is restored. And when that happens, watch out because your life will start to bubble. The joy in your life will start to bubble over again. That's when you have a new kind of energy to serve and to pray and to share about God's amazing grace who has restored you. And you become bold in your faith towards other people. You see, when you have a clean heart with that spirit of joy that is attached to it, there's a boldness and you go for broke. 
You're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because you know what it has done for you and you know what it can do to restore other people because you yourself have been restored and the outflow of that joy becomes contagious. So if you can honestly say or see that you are experiencing some kind of a spiritual slide in your life and you, you're thinking this morning that you, you want to get back to being a person of integrity, someone who is beloved and who is joyful. How does that happen? Verse 16 says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In other words, David is saying, if so, I'd go kill something and I'd offer it up to you. But High Point family, I want you to hear this. When you sin and when you want to be restored, there is no penance to pay. There are no candles to light. There is no detention hall that you need to stay in for months or weeks or years. There is no self-beating that you can inflict upon yourself that will restore you, even though you think in some perverse way there might be. None of that works. What does work? Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Consistent through all of the scriptures is this unbelievable truth. When guilty sinners fall to their knees, and when they say, I've sinned, I agree that what I did or what I said was sin. There's no deception here, God. It was me, and I did it. When anyone says those words at times that are so hard for our human pride to say, I'm sorry, God, will you have mercy on me? The scriptures teach us from cover to cover, that whenever we own up to our sin, when we don't rationalize it or when we don't play games, when we humbly ask ourselves, ask God for forgiveness, you know what happens? Rivers of forgiveness flow. Scott, would you guys come forward and help me to close this down? Sometimes when I look back on what my hands have done, or even some of the things that I've thought about doing in my lifetime, I can find myself thinking like Lady Macbeth. I'm never gonna get these sins off of my hands, really, which means out of my mind. But then I think about the hands of Christ being extended toward me. And he puts his nail-scarred hands over my hands. And he says, I've got you covered, David. This is why I went to the cross. And if you'll just confess your sin, I'll be faithful and I'll be just to forgive you of your sin. And I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I love you, David. This sin too can be cleansed like the many others in your life. I'd like you all to stand to your feet if you would. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I think it's quite possible that we have people watching online or people in this building today who are falling into a position of contriteness before God. Maybe you'd like to call upon the Lord this morning and confess, I'm sorry for some stuff, Lord. Well, I wanna give everyone an opportunity to do that this morning. We are gonna to go to the Lord in prayer. And if you have something happening or going on in your life right now that resembles a downward slide, we're going to give it to God this morning. If you're watching online or you're here in this building and, and you've never received the free gift of salvation that only Jesus can offer you, 
You can ask God right now. The Bible says in order to be saved, in order to receive salvation, you must first believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came upon this earth and he walked a sinless life. He showed us the love of the Father and he died an excruciating death on the cross and the blood that he shed atones or covers your sin. You must confess that in prayer, in your own way, in your own words. Maybe you need to call upon the Lord and say, God, I need to confess my sins today. I am a sinner and I want to be made whole. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And I don't want you to just listen to my words, but I want you to pray your own words. Pray in your own way the things that are on your heart and on your mind to God. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to cleanse you this morning. Tell him you want to be restored. He is the master restorer. It's Jesus' blood that covers your and my sin. But it cannot happen until you ask. But before we pray, I've asked the worship team to come up and lead us in this song that you know, which is based off of this scripture.
matter how far we've come, we are human. And we make poor judgment calls. And we sin. And Father, this morning, if we walk away impressed with any, let it be, first of all, that you restore sinners. You restore followers of Christ who sin. We cry out to you and ask for forgiveness. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, you would greatly show us the wrong of our ways, that when we sin, we would not just brush it off, but we would take it more seriously than anything. And even at that moment, we would seek forgiveness and not wait. That we would always confess those things that are going on in our life, Father, that, that are wrong, that are sending us in the wrong direction, that are beginning to put us on a slide away from you. That's what the enemy wants and he will do whatever he can in his power to remove us and separate us from our relationship with you. So God, would you impress upon us that there is nothing more important than for things to be right between you and us. Help us to daily confess our sin. Even confess those things we may not even be aware that we did, Lord, just to say, I'm sorry, Father, if I've done anything that was displeasing to you today. Let us be a people of repentance. Let us always keep the communication lines open between you and us. Always give us a contrite heart, Lord, a broken spirit about things that we do that are wrong. Bring them to our attention and help us to seek you through them. And God, like this story, I thank you that you are faithful to save us. You are faithful to cleanse us. You are faithful to put our feet on a new path, just like you did David. And we look at the remainder of his life and in spite of this horrible thing, that he did, that he was a part of, that he manipulated, that he concocted, that he created. With the loss of life, you still forgave him and you still used him. And he has gone down in history of being the greatest king that Israel ever had. Always let us be reminded, God, that there is forgiveness from you. Doesn't matter what we've done doesn't matter how broken we feel over it. Your blood can cleanse us and make us whole. Pray that anyone who's watching us online or in this building who has sinned to confess that they would have the courage to do that, ask you for forgiveness, ask you to cleanse them. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, our conversations, the things we do things we talk about. Let it be pleasing to your ears, Father. And most importantly, I pray that you would allow us and, and show us how to be bright lights in this very dark and weak world in which we're living. Help us not to be ashamed through the joy that you've given us through our forgiveness to share your goodness with others and lead them to the cross of Calvary. That's what you've called us to do, and I pray that you will help us to fulfill that commandment. Lord, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for my church family, those that are here, those that are still watching from home, Lord, send your love. Let your spirit engulf them right now. Know that you love them, know that we love them, and we can't wait till the day where we're all together again. Until then, I pray that you'll keep us strong. You'll keep us looking heavenward and understanding that you are in control of all of these things. It's not the government, it's not a virus, but God, you are ultimately in control. Let us trust in you in all things and in all matters. And we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.